white evangelicalism is we've made it the center of what the Christian faith looks like in our context, but it's in terms of the global Christian body, it's like just one little branch, really. What's up, y'all? Episode 3, Faith in the Fresh Five podcast. I am Rohadi coming at you from Treaty 7 Lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I have a special guest here that goes by the Decolonized Christian. Where have you heard that before? Well, you need to check it out on Instagram, the underscore decolonized underscore Christian with nearly 30,000 followers exposing the church's colonial past from an anti-colonial perspective. This episode includes the voice behind the account and the story that shaped and formed a lot of his thinking today. I believe that white folks, what's up white folks, uh, you're going to pull in some of your own interest and experiences with the decolonized Christian in this episode. It is one about deconstruction, one about challenging presuppositions and old formation coming out of the context of fundamentalism and white evangelicalism. His story doesn't take him out, however. He still remains within the institution, but his intention. I think that's the story of many folks who don't know how to balance a lot of the tensions, often you walk away from your faith. That's an option. And then there's some who are at odds with what's going on in-house, but they're not ready to give up the relationships that are there. Are there pathways unto deconstruction? Other than my book, of course. Forthcoming book, When We Belong, Spring, Summer 2022. Check that out. In the show notes, you will find the link to the Instagram account. You'll also find ways you can support this podcast. Visit rohadi.com. Look in the top right corner for the link towards support, and you can find out different ways. The easiest one is to just sign up for the free newsletter that comes out once a month. These podcasts come out maybe two or three times a year, and I try to bring on some guests to share ideas around reimagining the Christian faith in a modern world. It's a challenge towards presuppositions around justice and new formation unto anti-racist discipleship, if we want to use that term, or just new formation towards a Christian faith that matters in this day and age. This is about an hour long, and I didn't cut it into two because I just felt our conversation flowed from an introduction into the decolonized Christian and his story. It will resonate with yours if you grew up in the church, and then we kind of just take a linear approach in the work towards dismantling old voices. So we're going to jump straight in and begin with the questions and the exploration. (laughs) 
Today on the podcast, welcome y'all. We have the decolonized Christian from Instagram. That's the underscore, right? Yes. The underscore decolonized underscore Christian. Uh, one of the rare voices, and there are more now emerging uh, within a Canadian landscape, although obviously. Uh, Instagram opens up the door to the world now, but within a Canadian landscape doing work around decolonizing, around deconstruction, uh, offering post-colonial and anti-colonial perspectives within the Christian tradition, um, and will pigeonhole it even more within an evangelical, white evangelical church tradition. Uh, and there's quite a following behind the decolonized Christian. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I asked you at the start, like, hey, how should we intro this? Um, how should we describe the Instagram page? And there were a couple of key terms that you threw my way. Uh, around the vision behind the Instagram handle. And they include offering and educating people around the Western church's colonial past from an anti-colonial perspective and uplifting post-colonial voices. So that's a lot of anti and post, and we need to unpack those right off the hop. So what do you mean by those terms? Well, first off, I have to give credit to uh, Dr. Randy Woodley from his book, uh, Decolonizing Evangelicalism, for those terms. They were incredibly helpful in kind of giving me more of a vision for what the purpose of the page is. So uh, post-colonial is, a post-colonial voice is anyone who... Uh, Essentially, the colonial frameworks or the colonial systems do not work for them. They overlook them, they do not benefit them, or they benefit them only to an extent but not fully. Um, an anti-colonial voice is one who uh, those colonial systems do work and do benefit for them, yet they see the flaws of that system and they offer, um, they speak truth to power essentially from within the system and so an anti-colonial voice in a north american context would be particularly a white male um yeah and that would be me and that's the voice i offer uh for my page and i come from that perspective I think that you have a interesting story in terms of the pathway that you've taken along deconstruction. Would, would you use that term, deconstruction? Yeah, I would use that term. Yeah, I think it's a helpful term. The pathway towards uh, deconstruction or within deconstruction, deconstruction is one that many Christians have taken and also one that many, especially in our pandemic, post-pandemic climate, with all of the rising voices towards dismantling uh, injustice, particularly around racialized injustice, 
more people are looking for a resources but also b stories of those who have gone through this journey and that's your story is it not it is my story yeah um i began my journey of deconstruction probably in about uh yeah 10 or 11 years ago when i was going to university i was living with some uh really respected uh, Christian friends uh, who are significantly old, like they're elders. And um, they were challenging my own perspectives on some of the deeply held beliefs I had grown up with, such as biblical literalism, uh, seven-day literal creation, um, and just even uh, challenging my biblical science view. You know, I definitely, like, I, I was a homeschool kid, so I grew up, uh, you know, reading Christian textbooks and studying Christian science and, like, all that stuff. And um, I, I was deeply entrenched in that world and in that perspective, and it really kind of was surprising for me. Like, I, I was honestly shocked to find Christians who loved God— deeply loved God and served him and like we're in ministry even and yet believed in like old earth or even evolution um, and just had different perspectives. I didn't know those two things could go hand in hand and that started me on a whole long kind of lifelong process. I, I In that time I went to Bible college to a couple different schools and I was training to be a pastor, training to go into ministry myself, and I started to learn from other perspectives, and I, I, I was, it's kind of continued, just slow steps kind of moving forward in that regard. Christians often have these moments if they choose to surround themselves with people who with different perspectives, even traditions, like even within uh, white church traditions, to use uh, that term, even within Protestant, different Protestant traditions, if you don't uh, connect with those with different ideas and theological ideas, then you, you might assume that the whole world matches your gaze. Uh, but when you do unlock that, you're kind of given a choice of whether you accept that as a possibility or completely reject it and assume that your mode of truth is the only truth. Um, I, I remember one of my mo one of many moments, of course, I think there are many moments. One of my moments was going to Ethiopia and realizing that when the church and the church, when the West and the East split, it was because the Ethiopian church had a particular way of viewing God and Jesus, and that was rejected now by the growing influence of Rome, and they split. And when I was in Ethiopia, it just struck me that tens of millions of Ethiopian Christians who were the second state, the second uh, country to... Uh, officially Christianized before Constantinople, they are they wrong? Was I asking myself uh, back then? Were they wrong? Like, could tens of millions of Christians be completely wrong? Or is my picture of how big God is too small? 
you encountered some different ideas within the same, like within the evangelical tradition. And what was it then that flipped the switch and said, these might be possibilities? Uh, Well, I mean, going to school and learning about the actual science, like for, like I was in a geography course and we were studying, um, it was in Saskatchewan. So we were looking at the Saskatchewan river and how the way it meanders, it's like how it, uh, it's, it's kind of formed lakes over time because it'll, it'll through erosion wind around kind of like a snake. And then after erosion after a certain point in time it'll cut through and it'll form a lake kind of where it used to go around the bend but of course this process happens over millions of years and like the science was just irrefutable and i was working at a park at the time that was one of those lakes off of that off of the river and i was like i can't deny kind of what took place here and i think i started to realize you know I grew up with a framework that was very controlling. It was very um, kind of within a box. It had God figured out, you know, and it said Mm. that, you know, those who don't believe like we do aren't really Christians. And then you kind of leave home and you go and you meet other people and you see, I mean, I'm going to use this very cliche biblical example but you see the fruit you see their fruit is good fruit and you see that they love god and they um they love they love people and they you know you see the holy spirit presence and and working in their life and yet they don't believe the same things i believe and i think it was a huge shift in perspective and worldview for me going from kind of this is the way it is to like, maybe the more I learn about God, maybe the point is that um, the more I learn about God, the more I realize I don't know about God. And I think that sparked a curiosity in me. Um, and I, I think that was more what my experience was, was a curiosity of like stepping beyond mm-hmm. and learning and growing in that way. And I've always tried to stay curious. I've always tried to ask questions. Um, and I think that's a lot of what kind of... Dr- I think most of the people who are listening to this podcast are those who have uh, done some of the work where they have become alert to a new way of thinking or being. Um, I wonder what that process looks like. And and by the way, like kudos, because I don't think everyone coming out of conservative or fundamentalist Christianity would tip into curiosity. You typically are protecting what beliefs you've grown up with. Uh, and, And that just perpetuates an insular cycle, I think. Uh, so for you to flip the switch into curiosity, that's a that's a big step. So I think most of the listeners in this podcast would be in that space, mm. that 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 switch, that alertness, that awareness has now developed. But where you go from there is now the mm. problem, the problem, or perhaps the journey. In that, I don't know where to go next. 
or I leave the faith entirely mm-hmm. because it stops making sense. Uh, my belief systems have been shattered. And there's probably many things that are incongruent, particularly around social justice, injustice, mm-hmm. and so forth. Uh, it's easier to leave if there's no pathway. Okay, so why didn't you leave? And what did that journey look like in terms of reframing your faith? Mm-hmm. Because w- was there a moment where everything kind of looked like I'm standing at the edge of the abyss of my faith, everything that I practically knew of before I call into question, and now you're at the fork in the road. Yeah. Was that an experience you Yeah, had? there was moments for sure. They were sporadically kind of interspersed moments. They weren't like, it wasn't like a moment where I was looking down the cliff or something. Um, mm-hmm. But there was moments, and I think I had to make choices along the way um it's like i could keep going into a direction that i knew would lead me towards non-belief or towards just wanting to walk away it's not even non-belief it's Mm -hmm. i always have loved christ i've always wanted to follow christ but there's been moments where i've been so just infuriated by what I see take place in the church that I have wanted to. And I still have those moments, if I'm being honest. I definitely have those moments from time to time. Um, But I think what, and this goes back to the curiosity and the perspective shift, is when I started learning and doing more of my own reading and um, even studying other Christian traditions, such as the Eastern Church or such as Black Liberation Mm -hmm. Theology, you realize that white evangelicalism is, we've made it the center of what the Christian faith looks like in our context, but it's in terms of the global Christian body, it's like just one little branch, really, in terms of the rest of it. Yeah. One yeah. tiny branch with very exactly. little history. And yeah. like, <laughs> and then you start seeing, reading about the history or learning about the history of uh, these other traditions, and you're like, oh my goodness. Like, so these ideas that I'm questioning or these beliefs that I'm now leaning towards are actually like orthodox beliefs. They're not progressive at all. They're mm-hmm. like so rooted in tradition. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's and, one and, of the... biblical. Exactly. And biblical, like far more biblical than even a lot of the conservative Mm -hmm. fundamentalist Mm -hmm. views that we've, or that I have grown Mm -hmm. up with. And Mm -hmm. that was, it's that shift and it's realizing that white fundamentalist evangelicalism needs to be decentered. It's, I really appreciate, uh, Dr. Drew Hart's analogy from his book, uh, Who Will Be a Witness, about uh, the white evangelical male standing on top of a table over top of everybody else sitting around the table. And all we are asking is for that individual to take a seat with everybody else at the table and start lifting up those other voices. And so that is 
essentially kind of the work of what my page is trying to do is it's trying to lift up those voices. And I know my own voice is sneaking in there a lot and it's, it's speaking quite loudly to that, of yeah, course. It must. But, yeah. And it's, it's yeah. kind of a hard balance for sure. But I, I do not, yeah. I try not to quote myself too much and I try to lift up as many voices as possible and try to bring in those other theological perspectives and tie things into, um, yeah, just the broader Christian community. Uh, shout out to Dr. Drew Hart, who we had on the podcast. We were talking about that that an analogy too, because it was we were in a bar in Montreal when he was sharing that story about the tables using the bar stools as as the example. And I'm, I I can't remember if I did this in my head or my response was like, we don't like you can come off the center of the table, right? Uh, but we're we're at a new table. Mm. We're not trying to redeem these old tables. Jesus flipped yeah. those tables. We're at new tables. Mm-hmm. And you can try to get up and sit in the center of these tables, but you're not invited to do that. Um, maybe you're invited to the table, but there is this reality. We have constructed a new table a lot of conversation around reimagining faith and, and trying to reimagine existing church traditions uh, or denominations, and we'll use white evangelicalism as an example, which we call evangelicalism within church tradition, not white evangelicalism, but we'll add the moniker because we call it the black church or we call it the Chinese church, or we, so we'll call it the white evangelical church here. Uh, they have missed the mark in terms of the work that they can do. Uh, and when it comes to decentering, uh, I would add one thing to your idea there in, in terms of uh, decentering the, uh, the white church and one that doesn't have a ton of history behind it, although many stretch into the Reformation period, of course, uh, is that that tiny branch is unlike others because, and we could use the Catholic Church as as an example too, which is much broader, Mm -hmm. of course, it is rooted in white supremacy. That's different because at the seat of white supremacy is power. And so there is this white evangelical church, white Protestant church, and we'll use North America as an example. That's our context. The difference is that this church is rooted in white supremacy and rooted in the power systems that that affords. And that's very different. I think in our white circles, we have done so much harm and caused so much damage to those that we have colonized. That's the, it's colonizing theology and it it roots, it dates Mm. all the way back. I mean, it probably goes further back to um, Roman imperialism with Constantine and Christendom, but mm. it dates yeah. to the doctrine of discovery in 1492, right? Uh, of course, mm-hmm. Christopher Columbus was endorsed by the Pope and by the King of Spain to discover lands for God. And yet these lands had been lived in for 30,000 years. <laughs> and this place was called Turtle Island. This was already a place that was inhabited and had culture and had um, just an incredible society. Like, 
you hear the stories of how indigenous peoples traded and how they um, worked together as communities, how they shared resources and land and how they migrated different, like this place was like, even in terms of society, they were possibly above like everyone else in the world in so many ways. Like, and yet they used power to take this land for themselves and claim it, claim that they discovered it and they claimed that they did it for God, right? That's the caveat, is that they used the God piece to diminish other humans, not merely of power, but of white supremacy, and using their standard of whiteness they created Mm -hmm. one in fact they created one because it didn't exist before that they created a standard of whiteness in order to diminish black and brown and indigenous bodies and then all chaos of course unraveled let's go back and talk about the the pathways because i know people are on the journey what were the uh, marking points along your journey? Because we, we went from deconstruction, facing the abyss, all the way to now I'm alert to doctrine of discovery, white supremacy, enslavement, and so yeah. forth, all the way down the line. There's a lot in there between, is. right? You don't just arrive to a place where you can start to deconstruct the formation of institutional white Christianity in these lands. Uh, so, so give us some markers, some some key milestones, if, if you have them, of your own journey over ten years, really. And of course, and it's still continuing. I'm sure uh, that have led you to the way you think, perceive, and uh, embody your faith today. Oh, so many things. Where do I even start? <laughs> So many key things. I spent uh, 10 days on an indigenous reserve in northern Saskatchewan. And I think that really, just just that experience alone, it, it can't not change you. Like it, it's, when you see the poverty and you see like just the systemic injustice at play um, and just the lack of resources that they have, like things like clean drinking water or, you know, uh, teachers to teach at the schools, you start asking some pretty big questions like what's going on, right? And uh, so th- that was that was one experience for me. I, I spent 10 days uh, and that kind of led me on a journey to want to learn more about just what we have done to Indigenous people in our country and I, I think um, before that time, I'd, I was pretty ignorant. Like, And I'd say I, in a lot of ways, like until only a few years ago, I was very ignorant still. Um, I have my own ideas and my own kind of like preconceived uh, just beliefs around, uh, you know, how to fix them or how, you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of... That's, again, colonizer language, right? How do we fix somebody? Mm. That's exactly what the Indian Act does. Is it it uh, uses that kind of language. Mm. And uh, so I've, I've had to learn to see that within myself. So that, but that was kind of a catalyzing event for me, spending, spending that amount of time on a reserve. Um, 
Another big one, and I'm sure a lot of people will relate to this, was uh, Trump's election in 2016. Um, experiencing Ooh, okay. a lot of, I, I, at least a lot of my white friends, uh, this kind of started it for them. But seeing... Like a good or bad thing? Was it like, yeah, my boy's in, or was it like, yeah. oh, God, well, so, what's happening? Um, I guess both, like... You start seeing the extremes, yeah. right? I, a lot of people, it was like, mm. I mm. was personally shocked by the number of friends and family who were like, basically worshipped him. And I'm like, that is really problematic coming from, you know, at least from the Christian circles like that I came from, at least we upheld mm-hmm. like, you know, morality. <laughs> I thought he was the opposite of morality in so many ways, right? And to me, that was really shocking because um, it just seemed incredibly hypocritical to write off somebody like uh, Bill Clinton for having an affair, but then ignoring a man who has had multiple affairs and is calling women terrible things and saying awful things literally on camera for the whole world to see. And yet they just claim that they're just going to have grace for him. And I'm like, that was very, very revealing. I think there was something very apocalyptic about Trump's election Hmm. uh, for for our world. I honestly think that it was at that point that we saw the world saw the state of where white evangelicalism has become like how deeply entrenched and embedded it is in white supremacy. I found my way to the liturgist podcast at that point in time. I found them super helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Hillary McBride is from my area and she was one of the hosts of the podcast. And as a therapist, my wife's a therapist as well. And, um, you know, I, I just, there's something really just helpful and grounding. Uh, and, and they were making space for doubt and for wrestling uh, kind of through that process. Um, and I found a lot okay. of solsti- like solace in their, uh, kind of in their words and kind of the work they were doing and starting to wrestle with uh, just some other ideas that, you know, were breaking away from this fundamentalist white, supremacist hold on Christianity, which is kind of ironic because the liturgist was started by two white guys, but that's, that was where my journey was taking. Exactly. Right. And that was where my journey was taking me at the time. Right. And this was several years back. Right. And so, um, Mm -hmm. they introduced me through a lot of their guests and people that they had on. They introduced me to some other voices and, um, they, uh, yeah, they launched a uh, Black History is American History kind of side thing with William Matthews, one of their co-hosts at the time. And um, that was like really, really cool. I was uh, learning a ton like through that and listening to all those. And um, that got me reading a lot more history. And so... Yeah, yeah.
So tell us about the work then. You've given us some monuments and resources, and I want to pull out there the uh, term you used that there were there were safe white spaces. Mm-hmm. I think you said, which is which is uh, powerful, but also privilege. Probably. I think, as I thought of it, it's like, well, where's the safe spaces for m- mixed ethnicity people? Where's the um, so that means that the resources are out there, especially yeah. if you're white and, and a podcast don't care, you know, you can listen to them. Um, don't matter who you are. Uh, tell us about the work though. Uh, cause you did the learning part and, and took on your own journey there of learning, but there's gotta be challenge and deconstruction to identity around there. Right. Uh, like you don't wind up even over the course of 10 years, you, Put it this way, you can't podcast your way into the space that you are in now or into deconstructed mm-hmm. space uh, where you have a, a, an even greater strength in a, that's a new, reimagined faith. Mm-hmm. So what did, what did some of the heavy lifting look like? Uh, heavy lifting. Um, well, first of all, I want to make the disclaimer that I am still learning and I... I don't feel like I've made it or anything like that. Like I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to claim ever that I have, I want to be a lifelong learner. And I think in this space, I have to be as a white male. I have to take the position of the student in almost all situations Mm -hmm. regarding decolonizing, Mm -hmm. specifically decolonizing, not deconstruction, not, um, you know, that, but like, or not dismantling, but decolonizing specifically. Moving forward, I can't offer solutions, if that makes sense. Like, it's mm-hmm. not my job to be the mm-hmm. solution to the colonial, the harm that colonial Christianity has done. I don't get to have the voice in that. And so my um, learning has taken me to read other voices to learn listen to other voices to so i i spent a lot of time reading that's my big thing is i i read a lot of books i research a lot in that regard and um i want those the voices of those individuals to be speaking and speaking through my page not as much my own voices or my own voice right was there not like a crisis of faith or or pieces of where you realize you've stripped away aspects of your faith formation or identity? Yeah, so stripping away, um, yeah, like there was certainly, I think through the process, again, like I I never let go of my belief in God, my, my faith in Christ, like following Christ. I wanted to do this out of my desire to actually follow Christ, not... Um, just to dismantle the whole thing, kind of. Uh, but in that process, yeah, it's it's hard to put into words exactly. Like, it's... Um, I never really went through any of the traumas or any of the kind of... All, there's a lot of abuse and a lot of pain that a lot of people have experienced in church circles or in, in mm. fundamentalist mm-hmm. circles, and I, I want to acknowledge that, and I want to... Um, recognize that those experiences are very real for so many people and so painful. And I, that was 
really not my experience, but it was more of an experience of kind of feeling confused. I guess it was a, a confusing space. It was like trying to understand how people who preach about Christ and Christ's love, like we, we sing, I, being in a Pentecostal tradition, we sing so much about Jesus and about his love and about his, his healing ability, like all this. And yet, why were we not being those people in the world? Why were we singing about it a lot <laughs> and then not acting on it towards others and the way we treat people? And I think that's where I started realizing there was a lot of disconnect. One of the words that uh, you used as you were talking about the work of decolonizing was your position as a, as a white male that you don't have a say in those processes. And, and we chatted about this off, off air. When it comes to decolonizing, what is your role then? Because I, I think you do have one, um, and, and you're right in the posture of decolonizing. You're certainly not at the center of the table, perhaps not even at that table of what are the pathways to, unto decolonizing. But I think that you do have a role inherited through the power which you have, systemically at least, especially we'll use the, the church, of course, um, institutionally, to dismantle. How do you now balance both those terms, but also the approach between decolonizing and dismantling? Yeah. That's a good question. Um... So again, the dismantling part would come from that term anti-colonialism, which we defined earlier. Um, so I, I do offer a voice from within the colonizing system, the colonizing theological institution, that is the church, the white evangelical church. Um, now, colonizing church goes far beyond just white evangelicalism, and we, we've seen even in Canada with the recent revelation of the 215 children whose remains were discovered in Kamloops, uh, yeah. that it goes far beyond just white evangelicalism, like Catholicism, the United Church, Anglican Church, there's others as well. Um, but I, I tend to speak to my own uh, yeah, I, I sort of try to stay in my lane in terms of kind of where I come from, but I do critique white evangelicalism quite a bit. But um, yeah, the fine line would be on my page, like the goal is to enhance those post-colonial voices, those people who speak from outside of white evangelicalism and who have um, experienced the boot of white supremacy on their necks, right? That is kind of the, yeah. that is kind of the space that I'm at least trying, attempting to create. Uh, and yet, of course, my voice, like we said, does come through. I, I post a lot in the captions and in my stories and different things. But I, my thoughts are usually... Um, they're formed or they are kind of shaped by the individual I've quoted or um, 
by what I'm learning from post-colonial voices, if that makes any sense. When it comes to result, however, uh, as you juxtapose those two things, dismantling, doesn't it mean to dismantle? So are you looking for a result just just in individuals uh, and their journey of deconstruction? Or is there also a... Uh, some work, like your picture of what this the Instagram page is trying to achieve, or even broadly speaking, of seeing a dismantling of institutional problems, institutional injustice. Yeah, yeah. So institutional... So w- when it comes to the church as an institution, I do not hold back in my... <laughs> in my uh I, I i think there's so much about the institutional church that does need dismantling and um you know one of the things mm-hmm. i've been saying recently is our white churches buildings exist in canada at least on stolen land you know and 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 the mm. but again the church is what is the church right the church isn't a building. The church isn't an institution. It's the people. And so I think with part of my dismantling is I'm actually just trying to, I want the church to be the church, which is the people. The people, Mm. a community of people for people. Um, Not overlooking people, but a community that loves God, loves neighbor, um, that lives as Christ in the world, and it doesn't need to be an institution, or doesn't it shouldn't be an institution. And I think it's becomes the institution of the church is very problematic here in the West. Like it's been so entrenched with colonialism; it's so tied to the state. I, I'm still wrestling through all this, as you can probably see. Like, I'm still trying to figure out my own process in how um, I understand the church and what the future of the church could look like. But at the same time, I don't think it's my job. In fact, I don't think it can be my job at all as a white colonizer to um, say that this is what the church should look like in a place like Canada that is colonized because of the church. You know, I think if we truly want to be the church, then we need to be led by people that the church has overlooked or trampled down or um, Mm. systemically oppressed. So, I mean, in that vein then... Because that's a, and I'm hearing it as you're sharing, that's a tough balance to make between stepping aside and saying what the church looks like should be in the hands of those without the power to shape and form that, and actually giving those people the power to do so. And in order to have the space to create for marginalized people, uh, someone needs to dismantle or shake up the existing institution or that just becomes wishful thinking or and I asked you this before do you think that 
the institution can even change. And we're talking about something that is rooted in, in a colonial mindset, which to me is, is roots of white supremacy, which by inheritance, the institution is designed to preserve itself and maintain power. And for others and new voices to come alongside, I don't think it is designed. I, I totally agree with you. Church of the people. Absolutely. And the institution has messed that up in many ways. I don't think that there is a pathway for institution to switch over uh, towards this new recovery of what church should mm. be. Yeah. And like, yeah, you ask if it can be fixed it's like i suppose it could be redeemed redeemed? i mean god's big enough yeah (laughs) god's big enough to redeem like i don't have vision for that because it's always been just a chaos and banging my head against the wall in terms of whether because white supremacy is so big and power is so big so okay god Mm -hmm. could but i just uh haven't seen it and i haven't seen good examples of that i should say and Evangelicals are the worst, by the way, mm. at that. So I'm skeptical that that it can happen. Yeah, and I yeah, I, my answer to that question too is I don't know. Like I honestly, some days I think it can be, but there's other days I just, I'll just use this example. Like how could I'm reading uh, a book called uh, God of the Oppressed by James Cone right now, and he talks mm-hmm. about the the Christianity. It's on the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he talks about the Christianity of the oppressed or of the slaves, right? And then mm-hmm. the Christianity mm-hmm. of the slaveholders. And they're two totally, totally different things. Like, one is clearly mm-hmm. antichrist. Like, if, if we want to talk about what, um, mm-hmm. you know, it That's is completely word. opposite of everything Christ stands for, the liberating message of Christ who was a colonized Jew living mm. under Roman occupation. He, you know, mm. to use Christ to oppress people or to control them mm. is like completely mm. antithetical to the gospel. Antichrist is and it's yeah. And I think yeah. that's what the book of Revelation completely is warning the church about. It's like, if you get caught up in imperialism, if you get caught up in beastly economics, mm. that is that mm. is your doom. You know, you are going to destroy, Mm. (laughs) you are going to make earth a living hell. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what's happened, Mm -hmm. you know? And so how do you make something, how how can something that is anti-Christ be redeemed? I I don't know. I honestly, that is the question that (laughs) keeps me up at night. But you also work within the tension of that as as someone who is you've remained within a a white mm-hmm. evangelical context. Uh, you still, I assume, see I do. The hope. I hope. I I hold and I cling on to hope, and I I know the people that I work with, and I know the people in my church, and I they love Christ, and they. They're broken by what has transpired in the last few weeks with the discovery of the 215 children's remains in Kamloops. They want to do better. Mm. There's an increasing number of white people that are disillusioned and are wanting a better way forward. They're 
recognize they're starting to see how deeply antichrist the systemic colonial church is right they're starting to mm. realize that something is off that i think is the glimmer of hope i see but yeah whether the institution mm. can be i i honestly the again talking about the institution and i think it's important to separate the church as the people from the church that has become the institution because i i think christ is for the church um and I am for the church as as people, but when it comes to institutions that have caused harm, that have caused trauma, that have literally been the root of genocide, it's hard to be willing to defend that institution. However, I'll press back. Those institutions aren't faceless corporations, you know, I, and maybe they are faceless institutions in many respects, but that's mm. too easy. And they were shaped and formed by people and still are, still are defended um, by the church, by, by people. And so we can't divest the two, I don't think, because it's the same people who have shaped and formed who are still in it now protecting it. And so in that regard, I don't think I don't think the institution can shift because of those reasons and because it, it's designed to self-preserve. And I also, however, echo your your hope in that there there are people who are yearning for better, deeper, better, something more just that is reflective of the throne and the foundation of God. Uh, that embodies Christ's hope to rescue and redeem all of creation. Yeah. I believe that. I, d- I just think it has to come outside yeah. the institution. And I, I'd love to echo um, Jared McKenna from the Inverse podcast. He works with Drew Hart as a co-host of the Inverse podcast, mm-hmm. and he specifically, his field of study is in um, decolonial theology. And one of the things he talks about is... Um, for the good news of the gospel to truly be, be good news, it needs to be good news for all of creation. And that, I think, is kind of one mm, of the key mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. key elements, too, of, mm. of this whole conversation around decolonizing is, you know, is our theology, is our practice in the world, is our institutions, is it good news for all creation? Is it good news for the environment? Mm -hmm. Is it good news for the other animals and the birds of the air? You know what I mean? Like is, let alone people. I mean, so, but if, if our theology isn't good news for all people, like we're in big trouble already, but we need to take it a step further and ask if it's good news for all creation. And that's kind of, that's something I want to start pushing a lot more kind of with the page is um, a practice mm. in the world mm. that is not just for people, but it's for all things, you know. Which, as we circle back, indigenous spirituality has something to say exactly. about all those things. Exactly, That whole doctrine of discovery that came to annihilate. Yeah. <laughs> they have a few things to share. You've, you've spoken about the evangelical church around the now uh, renewed awareness, which is weird in Canada because Canadians have been formed and shaped in a, in a cultural narrative that we're not racist, that we're this vibrant mosaic. 
and as we become more alert, I think social media is partly to um, uh, not blame, but to commend for raising awareness around these issues. But 215 children, which is the worst kept secret. There are 3,200 plus, um, if you read the Truth and Reconciliation Report, children, um, unmarked graves throughout Canada and counting. Mm -hmm. So that was a a, a piece that you shared that people are starting to change their mindset. I wonder then, as you spoke about your own pathway and how the 10 days you spent on that reserve was an alert, it, it developed your awareness, was the awareness around being alert to your own whiteness to white supremacy as power, was that a separate pathway unto deconstruction? Is that a different thing as we talk about racialized injustice? Does it need to be treated on its own or as a unique thing? Or was it part of the whole package for your own? I've always seen it as part of uh, the whole package for sure. Um, but now you got me question wondering, (laughs) um, I've always, um, seen the injustice and, and known that there's something that is off. Right. And I've cared about this as a just a social justice issue for sure, uh, for a long time. Um, but yeah, I think my deconstruction was now that you say it. I think maybe even separate to that. And then I found a space to join those two. Right. And that's sort Uh, of where uh, uh, that's powerful. That's where like finding the inverse podcast community, they've been deeply formative for me. Um, I've been, Mm -hmm. uh, I've been kind of involved in their community for a few years now, and I highly recommend them to everyone because I, I think they're a global community. Um, They center, specifically uh, women of color, which is just amazing, um, and are really focused in on uh, not just theology that is good news for all people and anti-racism, but also, uh, yeah, the social justice element, right, and bringing those two together. So that kind of Mm -hmm. was where I found a space for both of those, and... It's been deeply yeah. formative for me. I mean, that's that's good. I, I'm hearing a both and, um, which I think works for me. The like it matters if it works for me. Um, yeah, I, I mean, on the matters of, especially when we were talking about residential schools, evangelicals like to wipe their hands clean of that. Blame it on the mainline traditions. Evangelicals are in Canada are extremely poor around racialized injustice. Many of them, when George Floyd was murdered and the protests came through in summer of 2020, few had a response. And it's almost as if the pandemic gave them an excuse to kind of sweep it under the rug. And they still don't have a response. Like evangelicals, white evangelicalism is just so far behind when it comes to writing systemic 
injustice around white supremacy, the mainland traditions, although flawed, and although participants in residential schools in those atrocities have been doing perhaps sporadic, but they've been intentional around work of yeah. reconciliation. That's not a story in evangelicalism. It's true. It's true. And it's an indictment. Yeah. We should leave that as it is an indictment to white evangelicalism in yeah. Canada that there is virtually no yeah. voice. Yeah. And that's something that we. That's something that I have had to grieve a lot, <laughs> for sure. Um, that's been a very difficult, uh, you know, because I, I care a lot about the peop- a lot of people that are in that system. And, yeah, it's, um, I think a lot of people are grieving it as well, because it's, it's just so deeply embedded that it's like you can't you can't just declare that black lives matter because you're going to say that all lives matter because it's like you're completely missing the point it's like oh my gosh and that's such a chasm <laughs> such too a, and you can't even debate about it it's just like there's just no conversation it's you know i value the your your words you just shared on grief as something to grieve but I also want to affirm you specifically and in that you, there is the grief and you also have a voice to implement some change. That you can, you can do some change well, work and lead others unto the Thanks. same. And I, I think um, one of the things that we do not do well, in, and maybe this is just speaking to my Pentecostal tradition, but I think in evangelicalism as a whole, yeah. we don't grieve well. We don't lament well. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've written mm. on that, on lament. You, you can't, especially when the individual's so high and you sing praise and worship, like, especially in payoff yeah. churches, man. Like, you you are rooted in praise and worship. Like, to sing a sad song, like, can't even sing a yeah. sad song. And you want to talk about if we can do systemic yeah. lament? Like, forget about it. That's not in the experience or even the lexicon. The worship binder doesn't even have yeah. songs that, no, and I'm, forget it. It's an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, yeah. I'm a, I, I, I am a worship songwriter, so that's also an interesting kind of space yeah. I find yeah. myself in and something that I am still passionate about. And that's something I'm like working towards like kind of on my own is like, how do we write songs that are not just laments, but like, you know, dealing with the real stuff, you know, (laughs) dealing with the injustice. Like how do we write songs that like address how antichrist the church has become? Like that's, (laughs) that's kind of the space, the headspace I'm in. Mm -hmm.